Okay. Um, you know, at the beginning of this book, Swamiji was talking about if you're, you know, art critics are often not that creative because they're, they're, they spend their minds, their time so much being critical that it's hard to be creative because then as soon as you start creating, you start playing the critic in your own mind. A friend of ours, uh, family is very, they're very, they're, they're, um, they're very artistic. The whole family is very artistic and they're involved with, you know, publishing and producing and the whole world of art. One of their children was writing a story once. And the villain was the evil art critic. <laughs> it was really so amusing to me. People don't think of a villain as being an art critic, but in this case he was. <laughs> but uh, reading all of this about the language of music and the language of form and the language of color, I realized that's a, that's a constructive way. It's because it's not criticism, it's discrimination. It's a constructive way, and I started just reviewing in my mind um, well, music is something that you've heard me um, rant about is probably the only word that I can think of because the music is so obviously um, horrible. Um, but it's it just all the different things he said, it, it made me think how interesting it is to try to really understand what we're seeing and why it's affecting us for obvious reasons because then when, when we ourselves are trying to do either words or music or dance or, or, or visual art, instead of just vaguely sensing that it doesn't quite work, by, by learning, this is why he gives it to us in so much detail. He's not just trying to show off. He's trying to say, look, this really is the language. Train yourself in understanding this language. And then when you yourself are trying to create, you'll be able to say, oh, I can see why that's not working. That color's not clear enough. Oh, I can see why this doesn't quite say what I want. You know, there's too much curve and not enough straight line, or too much straight line, not enough curve. Or if we're writing music, we'll see, well, you know, this rhythm has gotten away from me. He doesn't specifically speak about dancing here, but the same, all of the same ideas are all manifested in dancing. And in other places, he's talked a lot about writing and about words, just how the rhythms play together. And he talks about the rhythm of speech and people who are actors, all of those things. And so, so if we start watching, not critically, but with discrimination, oh, I see. That was, the, that was what they did and that was the effect that it had. And then we train ourselves to be able to um, surround ourselves with high consciousness expressions of art and really know what we feel and why we feel it and then that will translate both into refinement of our own nature because it was saying that at the beginning. It, it just made me eager to, to learn to appreciate aesthetically on an even higher level because it will refine the feelings of the heart and then it will refine the thoughts, and then it will refine the consciousness. You know, we need all the help we can get. It's, it's like we, we have to live in this world which is not supportive of our spiritual life. So the more we can spiritualize each area, and this, um, going back to the beginning of this course three weeks ago, you know, our particular path has an enormous amount to do with creative art. And I think it's a mission that we have as creative artists to help with Dwapara, to help bring in Dwapara Yuga art. Um, it's just uh, every all of Krishna's soldiers look like Krishna, and our Krishna master is uh, very creative. And his one of his soldiers, Swamiji, is very creative. And all of us have to accept that same bhav. And if we're not artists ourselves, we at least need to understand it and to be able to think that way. Because then, even in the little things we do, we can help bring that consciousness up. And in, 
a previous chapter, Swami remarked that, you know, it's not merely that we uh, create something beautiful, but creating beauty draws beauty in. And it's, it's a genuine, it's a very interesting statement, it's a genuine way to uplift the world. By creating beauty, it draws more beauty to the planet. And the more beauty there is to the planet, the more everyone is uplifted. Isn't it a marvelous story? Okay, that's, our, that's it. Good night. <laughs> and one more class, finish the book, then we'll be done. Yes. I should. Yeah, that's, you know, this year, for years Swamiji has been talking, years and years, Swamiji has wanted us to do, to, to start creating, well, festival was the word he wanted, but he wanted to start in Nevada City was his actual idea, not even at Ananda, but an annual event in which we do uplifted art of all mediums. And, and his, his vision for it was that it would become, you know, a, a very famous nationwide event, international event, in which joyful art would be presented. And so for the first time, we're going to start it this summer at Ananda Village. And that's actually the main reason he's coming back to the, the U.S. Because we're actually like having the Festival of the Joyful Arts for three days. And virtually everything, well, the music, the music and the play that are going to be performed over Swamiji has written. But there's going to be a, a display of, of painting by various people in the community. And it's just, it's a very small beginning. But in fact, it will turn into something. It'll be like a new way of expressing so, it'll be lots of fun. Okay. Um, the process of having to teach one of these books is the process of really having to understand it enough to explain it, of course, which is much different than just sort of reading it and thinking you understand it. That, in essence, is what Swami talks about art all the way through. You think you have a clear idea, you think you have a clear feeling, and then you try to express it, and you realize you don't. And then the process of learning how to express it, whatever medium it may be, um, is the process of getting clear enough inside yourself so that that clarity manifests through your creation. And if you're honest, you know, appropriately honest in your evaluation of what you do, you keep working at it until you have a, a, an articulate demonstration of whatever it is that you're trying to say, in whatever medium it may be. And in a sense, that's what happens when I, I have to get involved in one of these books is that I have to keep sticking with it until something clicks in my own mind way beyond the level that's necessary just to read it, at least for me. I'm not disciplined enough as a reader to stick with it word by word until I have that same kind of clarity. The other side of it, of course, which cannot be underestimated at all, as Swamiji often says, there may be only one person talking, but it is a conversation in the sense that the, the uh, consciousness that you're putting out is also drawing um, thoughts uh, from me that I would not think otherwise. I become the mouthpiece for uh, your own inquiry. In this particular class series, I, I may have mentioned it's been interesting because so many of you are, are you know, highly developed uh, creative artists. And so more than even usual, there's a kind of personal involvement from the class. And of course there always is if it's a divine subject, but nonetheless there's, something, there's been something very different about that that's been very interesting I think for all of us to sort of try to catch catch this. And I wanted to re-articulate something I did say at the beginning, but I feel it even more strongly now, that how, how much art, create, creative self-expression, is fundamental to this particular spiritual path. 
It's a guide to self-realization. It's the Dwapar Yuga way of realizing God. And I mean very specifically, because in the past, you know, the spiritual life is defined from the center outward, from those who are most dedicated out to those who have lesser and lesser involvement. That's the way it always is. And so even though nowadays um, the status of monks and nuns and priests um, isn't as, of renunciates in general, isn't quite what it used to be, Nonetheless, that's still, in a, almost a subliminal sense, the defining reality of spiritual life has always been the renunciate, whether it's a swami or a monk or a nun, whomever it is, because of the intuitive understanding among those who are sincere that ultimately all involvement must give way to complete renunciation. Um, at the same time, for all these centuries, since Catholicism has really been the bastion in the West, of uh, that kind of renunciation. The, the, it's been almost a joke, the, the concept of obedience and the blind obedience that is allegedly desirable in a monastic life that has come to mean, not because of, it, of truth, but because of the way things are in Kali Yuga, that you, you um, suppress all self-expression because of the fear that to express the self is to express the ego. And so it, it's almost like the ideal renunciate is the one who never does anything, really, is just sort of the obedient nothing. And even when, as recently as Swami Kriyananda's life in SRF, there was a tremendous conflict existent there, even though this should have been a more Dwapara Yuga monastic system. Nonetheless, the uh, mindset that overtook that organization was very much based on the Kali Yuga model. And, and Swamiji's an, an initiative, his constant creative ideas about how the work could be spread and what he could do to spread it and how he could get people involved was, was interpreted by many people as merely an expression of ego. Because the monastic ideal is that you, you just do what you're told. You don't initiate. And it's kind of a, a, a safe place to be. Because if you never initiate anything, if you only do what you're told, then you have less you know, chances are less that you'll do something wrong. It's not, of course, a very dynamic place to be unless it really is genuinely your divine calling. But unfortunately, as these things become institutionalized, they become more about the system and less about the individual souls. And so we've had notable crises of faith over the decades of individuals who start out trying to be those kinds of monastics, but who find the creative wellspring of divine inspiration makes such a lifestyle impossible for them. And it creates a tremendous conflict. Even Swamiji, even though he has uh, come to peace with who he is, you know, used to wish that he were different. He used to admire other of the monks who, as he put it, never had any creative ideas <laughs> because it was just so simple for them. Whereas he was always overwhelmed with creative ideas. As he said, he felt like he was sitting on a volcano of creativity. Now, that was Master's life. I mean, now looking at it from our, our no doubt, biased perspective, but there's sound uh, grounds for this. That was how Master was. That was the model that Master sent. He created, for example, this entire teaching. He created the whole expression of it. When you think about the life of Christ as an example, I mean, he didn't found the Catholic Church. And he did a few things. You know, I mean, he, I mean, he, did, he established a few traditions, the 
in, in theory at least, at the Last Supper, he served them wine and bread, and that became the tradition, and this became the communion, do this in remembrance of me, and so on. But he didn't himself really lay down guidelines or establish an institution or establish places or anything like that. He didn't, he didn't exercise that kind of creativity. It wasn't in him to do so. It's unlikely that he wrote songs or poetry. It seems that at least a fragment of that would have been saved. Maybe he did. But you would think that, that somewhere, some piece of it would have been included in something. But, it, but then the whole thing that followed from that was all about renouncing the self in the, in the most obvious sense. Not, of course, as if that was really necessary, but that's where it went. But Yogananda set this path of the courage to express yourself. And, and he really, it, his, his path is much more challenging in that sense. It's self-realization. You have to find who you alone really are. It's between you and God. It's an individual love affair. And even if there may be a fellowship of those seeking self-realization, the responsibility is still completely on us. And we, we're not going to be able to get out of this by doing nothing. And so Master just started right out with that same process. And he taught about healing, and he taught about money, and he taught about success in life, and you know affirmations for everything that you're seeking. It was all very active. And then he himself just did all these different things. He founded an institution. He created a school system. He created a new way of chanting. I mean, this whole way we have of chanting, this isn't the way they chant in India. It's a very different style. It's not the way they do religious music in the West. It's not the way they do religious music in the East. It was just something completely new that he created. Those poems from Whispers from Eternity, there's nothing like it. Even his poem Samadhi, there's nothing like it. it was, it's never been done before. This is all like a new reality. Now, the masters don't just do this to say, look what a great and unusual person I am. Look how, God, look how powerful God is coming through me. They don't have anything in it themselves. It's entirely to set a model. That's all. I mean, Christ set the model of picking up your cross and follow me. And Christianity has been a lot about that kind of courage. He talked about the father instead of the judge. That was a good idea, too. I mean, Jesus laid many, many uh, things down, you know, the majority of which are no longer practiced as he taught them. But Master came to do something else because it's a different age. It's an age of energy. It's an age of individuality. Um, it's an age of breaking down of forms. So there is a karmic responsibility for us to be creative. It really, in a very true sense, to be in tune with our guru. It's just, we're just not going to get away with just finding a little pattern and just repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. And Swamiji, of course, being the, the, uh, the, the, the product of his guru's consciousness, you know, just has had it way even beyond Master in terms of the many different fields, all of which Master himself touched. So Swamiji just picked up each one and then just finished pulling it out. But even he, he only brought it a tiny bit. You take, for example, the book Education for Life. I mean, Master st actually started a school and actually taught children. Swamiji has never, uh, beyond a moment here and a moment there, taught children very much at all. And I remember sometimes you kind of, uh, uh, this is what I was going to say, he gave a satsang for children at the, the Seattle community once, and they had a small group of really active little boys, and he gave a little satsang for them. And then after, at the end of it, he said... Uh, now be good, but not too good. 
<laughs> just like that's not being good is not all it's cracked up to be. But he turned to one little lad and he said, "I understand that uh, you have a lot of energy." And he said something to the effect that you that it's hard on your mother. And then he's first he said something like, "I understand that you're a little bit hard on your mother. You're hard for your mother." And he said, "But you have a lot of energy. That's good." You know, you're wanting him to come in and tell them to calm down, but he couldn't. He had to tell them, you know, you have spirit. That's what you should have. This is who you're supposed to be. But nonetheless, except for a little incident here and there, Swamiji just took Master's ideals of education, which were virtually not recorded anywhere. Until Swami wrote Education for Life, Nitai had four sheets of paper that he worked from to intuit the entire educational system you know, what, what would you do if self-realization was the goal? How would you educate children? And he just figured it out from intuition. Swami often praised him for that. And then Swami wrote Education for Life. And it is everything that you need, but it's, it's, it's seminal. It's not like, he doesn't draw it out. He's not like the German philosophers who draw everything out to its final point. He just lays down the groundwork. But it's all there. Barbara Rabin was remarking just this last weekend because she um, taught a class in how to bring the best out of children and she was going back, you know, to the source textbook, this slim little volume, which is not the one we're teaching tonight, but slim little volume, and just key, this little key words like true maturity or the, or the stages of development or the tools of maturity and uh, just different small things. Um, the specific gravity I'm not even going to explain the concepts but they're just very short a paragraph, two paragraphs but there's the whole thing but who's had to do it? you know, Barbara and Helen and Colette and Dharmaraj and, and all the ones who are involved in that school they've had to do exactly what is described here and tune into it and make it now they're trying to express a particular vibration that already exists, so it's a, it's a unique challenge. They need to express themselves, but yet they're trying to get very clear about something that's already been, to a certain extent, put forward. In other words, they have to get very clear about what they're trying to express. We are trying to express the educational ideals of Paramhansa Yogananda as further expressed by Kriyananda. We have to get very, very clear in that thought. I'm using this as a specific example. And then all these things follow. Communities, this sangha, all of you who are involved in the music or dance or um, all the different aspects of what we're doing, we, it, it's incumbent upon us. Or even if you're just a devotee, you know, working outside of, of forming this work, nonetheless, by the practice of your Kriya Yoga and the practice of your life as a devotee. What does it mean to be a disciple of Master, to practice Kriya Yoga, to be following the path of self-realization now? Nobody's ever done it before. Our lay member group was talking to us uh, one evening and it was sort of like there was this kind of question like, you need to define for us more what the lay member order is. It wasn't an unkind demand, it was just, I said, you know what? We have no idea what it is. There's never been a lay member order. And I'm not a lay member. I'm a monastic member. So I don't know what lay members are supposed to be. You're going to have to live it out. And we'll help you. We'll sort of re reflect back to you. But we don't know. Now, you see, that is our path. Our path is about that kind of creative um, uh, lifestyle. Now, as it happens, the spillover of that is that a tremendous number of people who are involved with this path, in one way or another, are also artists. 
you know, whether in, just in one form. It just sort of comes with the territory. And, and there's so many reasons, really, like we, we really need to apply ourselves to this. Swamiji has often spoken of the fact that Ananda, the day will come when Ananda will just be a, a, a gushing fountain of creative expression in all forms of art because it is the inevitable consequence of what we're doing. It's not even that we'll decide and set our minds to it. It's that if we follow this path properly, we're not going to, properly, we're not going to be able to help ourselves. And he's really put it out in this book. He's just really told us how to do it. And I, my, my sense of the importance of this story, you know, these classes that we've given in this particular book is just increased many fold. I knew the first time I read this that he was telling us something that we really needed to know, but I couldn't quite hear it. The message was too hidden, right? <laughs> but, but the other side of it is, is all the things that he himself talks about, which is all the enormous benefits that come to us. And I loved, it's, it's, it's sort of not the first chapter that he writes, but let me just speak about it for a minute. When he talks about facing the darkness, it's so um, extraordinary because facing the darkness is one of those really big issues that sometimes confuses people who are trying to follow the spiritual path and confuses people who are trying to put together, you know, how do I, um, how do I not be afraid of all those different elements and yet how do I reconcile it with, with spiritual life? And Swami just puts art, artistic expression, is, is a key way for us to transform our inner nature because of talking about the fact that um, the, way he, the way he speaks of it is that it's not enough to be able to intellectually cognize and analyze whatever it is that our limitations are. And he even says something very interesting in there. He says, even if you're highly intelligent, you kind of enjoy the process, even of self-exposure, ex, uh, of just talking about sort of all the different complexes you have and, and enjoying how you can explain them. And he said, and a different kind of ego comes in, which is the sort of pride in your cleverness and being able to explain it. But, but he's, he makes a very simple statement in here, which is um, several times recently I've quoted that statement of Shankaracharya, speaking about how outer ritual will not destroy delusion because outer ritual is not the opposite of delusion. You know, you have to wipe out delusion with realization. And outer ritual is not the same as delusion. They don't match, and so you can't eliminate one with the other. Well, Swamiji talks here about how our negative characteristics, our negative feelings, the limitations that we have, they can't be solved from the intellect because they don't originate in the mind. You see, they don't originate in the mind, they originate on, in deep inner levels. Now, we could talk about that really as the chakras, is what he's really talking about. He's talking about vortices of energy that are locked in the subconscious that could be seen in the chakras if you were looking at that. The chakras being the, the, um, the record, the, the, the vault, the depository, the deposit box, in which... Uh, let me just to say it, most of you know this, but just to say it in clear words, every action that you take, every thought that you think, every desire that you have, every single anything that happens to you, as long as you have ego consciousness, which is in both your physical and your astral body, 
even on the causal level, but the physical and the astral is what counts. As long as there's a piece of us that still identifies as the wave and has not yet lost the identity with the wave and is somehow becoming the whole ocean, as long as we have any ego consciousness, anything that happens to that wave sticks with us because we believe it happened to us. There's a, a magnet, a magnetic force called the ego, and that uh, vibration registers and stays with this entity that we call ourselves. Okay, now, and every action that we take and every thought that we think, every feeling, has a vibratory rate somewhere between total delusion and God consciousness, if you just want to think of it like that. You know, it just falls somewhere in whatever, however you would measure that. And the, the, the spine, that's what the spine represents, the complete manifestation into matter, complete freedom from matter and merging into the infinite. And it's vertical, or you can put it any way you want because it's not really physical. And every time you do anything, the, the quantity of energy represented, committed, spent in that way makes, uh, leaves a deposit of energy in your chakras. And over the course, and when you die physically, your physical body dies and the, the physical form that's been manifested from that inner energy may dissolve, but the inner energy doesn't go anywhere. That's who you are in the astral world. And all of that vibrational pattern that you are is there. And so you live in the astral world more purely according to what your vibration is. And so you get to be in higher realms if you have essentially a high vibration. And then when the time comes for you, when you need a physical body to continue to progress, we manifest a physical body that is capable of expressing the consciousness that we presently have. I gave a sermon about this. You remember when I talked about being cockroaches and being geckos and being lizards and being rodents, you know, that we use up the potential of those bodies because we, we hit the limits of that consciousness and we're ready to expand. So we keep going up until we get human bodies. And then we keep making human bodies that have the potential to express the consciousness that we're capable of expressing. You know, um, people, somebody will make a human body that will put them in the position of reading the autobiography when they're 15 years old. You know, there's people in our community who managed to make a human body that found the autobiography when they were 15 because there was the capacity to express that level of consciousness, so they made that kind of body. Or they made a body that could play music or could dance or sing or any of the other things or was healthy and strong or was male or female and a hundred that you can see all the things that we're doing. Okay, now it's within the chakras that the force field that makes us who we are really exists and that's karma. And the chakras are the vehicle by which karma is carried over from incarnation to incarnation. You put on the body that represents the energy you have, you dissolve the physical body and you still have the energy, you work with that energy in the astral world and then you come out again, you transmute that energy another cycle through another human body, you take off the material form, you re-manifest it, that's how it just moves. And so all of these strange characteristics that we are, oh, I'm anxious about this, I'm insecure about that, I'm angry in this situation, I'm have an inclination to have a bad back over here, whatever it might be, they're not manifesting from ideas that we have. They're manifesting literally as vibrations of energy. And they just keep forcing us in certain ways. I mean, psychology speaks it more as the subconscious, which is another way to put it, because it means that it's not something that we can grasp from the level that we normally live. It happens to us. 
It's us, but it, it seems to be imposed upon us rather than something that we choose. Now, the real freedom comes not when we think, oh, I wish I weren't this way, I wish I weren't this way, I wish I weren't this way, but when we change that, vib that vibratory level. And we change that vibration, of course, the most powerful way to change it is Kriya. Because Kriya works directly on the spine to shift that energy. That's why one Kriya is the same as one year of life. That's why it's the airplane route to God-realization, because you run that energy up and down the spine, and every time you do, you, you to, a, to some extent at least, you um, dissolve certain of those vortices of karma, you pull them into the spine, you bring them to the spiritual eye, and you burn them up. That's why every week we come in and we uh, take that piece of paper and we write on it and then we do the purification and you get touched at the heart because the heart is where these vortices of energy, um, the heart is the, uh, the, the central point of our likes and dislikes. Everything, the heart controls the upper and the lower chakras. As the heart goes, so goes everything else. So we, we try to purify the heart because if the heart is pure, then the energy rises. If the heart is drawn away from the light, then it, it draws the higher energy even down. So we take it and we burn, and then we have a piece of paper and we burn it up because that's representing the energy coming up the spine, burning up at the spiritual eye. So we act that whole thing out in the hope that it'll emphasize that that's really where our freedom from these things comes from. So we have this project in front of us, which is how do we really change the deep-seated energetic inclinations that cause us to be certain ways. Well, positive thoughts certainly help. And then Swami talks about the, that these, um, these, these inclinations, I mean, I'm going to sort of, sort of get these exactly the way he says it, but these inclinations are much more, um, what he, well, he doesn't exactly say it this way, but the real point is that when you change your consciousness, when you change your perception on a feeling level, not just on an intellectual level, you know, you're angry at someone, you think that they've really done you wrong, but if you, if you suddenly have a burst of sympathy or a burst of love for them or an understanding of who they are, someone was speaking to me not too long ago about someone who'd really mistreated him when he was a younger person. And you know, after all these years of being angry at him, it finally occurred to him to ask the question, I wonder what made him do such terrible things. You know, it's just like a whole different way of looking at it. Because as soon as you think, well, what moved him? All of a sudden, you only ask that question when there's some growing sense of sympathy and generosity in your heart. And that feeling of sympathy arises when love arises, when a sense of unity arises, when a sense of higher purpose arises. And then all of a sudden, it's not just a question, must love this person, must forgive. Bible says must forgive. P.G. Woodhouse mocks these things so beautifully in some of his clergymen characters, you know, who make little notes. Must, must forgive, be more forgiving, be more meek. There's very, some of you have heard those stories. That's sort of what's in the back of my mind. You don't change just from saying, oh, tie a string around my finger, be nice. You know, be nicer. Okay, I'll be nicer. You really become nicer when you lose the impulse to be unkind. And you lose the impulse to be unkind when some higher level of awareness comes to you. And it always comes to you, as Swami writes it, on a feeling level. And your thoughts always follow your feelings. It doesn't occur to you that this person 
might have had his own reality and that's why he was so horrible until some level of feeling and sympathy begins to come out of you. And so, so, so yes? When you say feeling, is that like your senses on the astral level or something? Let's see, how, how would you say it? It's not a thought, it's not an intellect, it's an experience. Feeling is more experiential. It's, it's just a sense of reality. Okay, clear feeling is intuition. Okay, unclear feeling is emotion. So a, a clear feeling about something is a knowingness about it that then can translate your, itself into a thought. But very often the first thing that comes is you have a feeling about it. You have a feeling, well, let's say we're doing something artistic. You have a feeling, I mean, as a singer, you have a feeling that there's a certain power needed in this line. And you would experiment, and then when you would sing it properly, because you had a feeling of how it should be sung, then you would be able to perhaps cognize what it was that you were doing and why you were doing it. Does that help understand it or not? So this feeling comes from a higher power? Um, true, true intuitive feeling comes from a higher power. It comes from an attunement from a higher source. Right? So do thoughts. Um, come from a higher source too, but feeling is what moves us. If we don't have a feeling about something, we don't act. That's why the feminine is considered the Shakti, because the feminine represents the feeling, and the Shakti is, is the force that makes you do something. So unless you have a feeling about something, you don't act. Feeling, feeling comes first, and then action comes after that. And part of what is wrong with a lot of art is there's no feeling in it. It's all just ideas. I, I was looking at a travel magazine, and they were talking about a brand new uh, a factory in New Jersey. That new, I think it was in New Jersey. It, it should be in New Jersey when you hear the rest of the story. That had been turned into an art gallery. And they were showing, it was a lot of space, so they are able to put in, out pieces that couldn't be shown before. And there was this picture of this thing. It was like, it was like an example out of this book. It was called Untitled. 18 works in plywood. <laughs> and there were 18 boxes, plywood boxes, set up in this room. I mean, like, I can't believe that somebody had some, like, deep feeling to make plywood boxes. I mean, maybe they did, but it would have to be more of an emotion just to be an idiot, you know, to do that. You just, like, you know, it's just, I don't mean to be rude, but you know what I'm saying. It's just an idea. I'll make plywood boxes. Nobody's ever done that before. There's no super conscious guidance to do such a thing because it's meaningless. And he even called, he had the courage to call it untitled at least. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a Sanskrit word for that? What we're talking about, you just got kind of Probably chitta. chitta. Yeah. And you have to transcend it. Chitta's in the heart, yeah. It's feeling in the heart. Yeah, it's probably something like that. Pure, pure feeling and emotional. Right, Swami writes earlier in the book that feeling, pure calm feeling is intuition. Pure calm? Pure calm feeling is intuition. And is that what they mean when they do say chitta, that clear calm feeling? Or do well, they mean it a different no, they couldn't because, because you talk about no birth, no death, and you talk about overcoming chitta. So chitta is, I, I can't say, I'm beyond myself. I, I have no recollection of anybody who knows more 
I mean, many people could explain this, and I can't remember how any of them have, so I won't try. So I'll just say, maybe. <laughs> we'll ask somebody else. Yeah. Okay. Yoga Vritta Chitin the Road. Yoga is the neutralization of the whirlpools of feeling. So the, the word chitta might be neutral, but when those feelings are in whirlpools in the chakras, then they certainly need to be neutralized before divine union is attained. That's Patanjali's definition of yoga. Yoga vritti chitta nirod. That means yoga is the neutralization of the whirlpools of feeling. And I, I think, means the opposite. So, so somehow that must mean the taking away of those vrittis of feeling, those circular. So perhaps chitta has a neutral meaning. I don't know. It may not. Well, ego, ego-connected feeling. Okay, but it's all directional. That's something that Swami also writes about. It's all directional. It's not an either-or. Until we're completely liberated, we're going to have these vrittis. And, and Swami writes, and I, I'll go back to it in a moment, but he talks about how the proper understanding of Einstein's theory of relativity is fundamental, that even though there are no absolutes, there are still directions. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. But let me, I was back in the... Um, oh, the, the darkness... But he was saying that because you need to attack this, you, you need to transform yourself on a feeling level and not merely on an intellectual ideal level, <clears throat> that, that one of the best ways to make changes is by positive action, not merely by sitting back and thinking about things. I mean, we can just sit back and think. I mean, all of us have been through this. I'm just going to stay home until I learn to treat people better. And you just stay home and you never learn to treat people better. You just stay home. Sooner or later, you have to just get back involved and you keep falling and things happen and you begin to learn how to, how to do things better. You always eventually have to start acting and positive action gets you engaged and you begin to learn what you need to learn and you begin to transform. That's the principle of service, of karma yoga, of just putting out the right energy helps to create the right vortices and they, at least relatively speaking, and they start raising the energy upward. And then he says very simply again, artistic creative expression is, is, is the ultimate positive action, one of, one of the most positive actions you can do. Again, because if we follow all the rules that we've talked about up until now in this class about concentration and clarity and attunement and um, trying to serve a higher cause and paying attention to what we're doing and doing it with a serviceful attitude, it, you, it, it accesses that feeling level, you see? It puts us in touch with that very level that we're trying to transform and, by, and we get to work with it directly. It's one of the, the few things that really allows us to work continually with, this, with it directly. It, because it's not emotion, it's transmuting it in an upward moving direction. And it's, it's such an interesting answer to that whole question, well, what do you as yogis do about the dark side? Well, we sing, and we dance, and we paint, and we write poetry, and we write books. You see, it's, it's a real answer. And we make communities. We, all the things that we do, we educate children, all the things that we do in a creative way is actually the specific answer to that question. As he's described it here, you see how it just takes the whole thing a quantum leap way beyond anything that we're normally thinking about. That's why he calls it a guide to self-realization. Because sooner or later... We have to find ways of really transmuting that. And yes, Kriya is the ultimate way, but most of us 
can't do Kriya all the time. We have a lot of other energy that we have to use somehow. And Swamiji writes in the, in the later chapter, you know, where art is going. And a lot of the things that he describes about where art is going is all to make it accessible to the individual really accessible to the individual. And he talks about how music will become one of the most important arts and the human voice will gain much more importance because it's the most perfect instrument for being really able to express our feelings. And, it's, and everyone has one. You know? And of course you can learn to sing better, but, but it's something that everyone can do and can then use it as real sadhana. It can be the positive action and, and we'll all, in a, in a higher age, what future he's talking about, I don't know. But heavens, let's make it now. Ananda is a, a, a futuristic culture. Ananda is not part of the yuga that we're living in. Ananda is part of the yugas that we're going to. That's why Swami's books are not very popular, and that's why we're small. And probably will be, at least until all of us are dead. Because we're just way out there. But we can make our world reflective of these realities. I remember right after Swami wrote the oratorio, when we were all so excited, I mean this was whenever, many years ago, 83, 84, when he wrote it, and we had all just learned it, and we were also getting ready to go down, I think that same spring we went down to Self-Realization Fellowship on a big pilgrimage with you know several hundred of us. But it, that, that period of time was so much fun because we were so excited about that music I mentioned this earlier, we all just sang it. I remember being in Earth Song, which happened to be the restaurant that Ananda owned, but it was a public place. And we just started singing one of the songs, and everybody around us enjoyed it as much as we did. It was just that it was in everybody's mind, and we were singing it all the time. I remarked once to Marilyn Boffman, and of course many of you know her voice. She has a very pure high soprano, just a very effortlessly beautiful voice, very childlike. And, and she just sings just with this ease like this. And I said to Marilyn, I said, on the planet you came from, I said, everybody must have sung. And she said, no, 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 no. She said, on the planet I came from, everything sang. She said. <laughs> and it was just a, really a perfect answer. It was just, she came from a planet where music was just, just came out of everything that was there. And so to her, it was just the most natural thing in the world. Remember how Master writes in autobiography about the children who, were, who went to Tagore's school and how they sang as naturally as birds? He said it just came out of them because it was just natural to them to do that. Now that, it's really sadhana. It's really a very elevated form of self-realization because by that constant positive action of art whose hidden message is uplifting, you're transforming your own inner nature in the best possible way because you're changing it on the level of real change. And then Swami's perfect. He said, eventually the thoughts will come to you too. He doesn't say you won't ever think about it. He said, but most people can't go at it from the intellectual end because the feelings are so strong, the feelings dominate the intellect, you see? You have to free up the feelings and then when the feelings are a little freer, then the intellect and the feelings can match. But you can't, as I say, just sit there and wait for that to happen. So you act it out. You act it out through art. You act it out through singing in all of these different forms. And again, it also takes the whole thing of art and says, this isn't about, you know, how great I am. This is sadhana. This is spiritual practice. I do this because it helps free me from delusion. And therefore, again, by definition, whatever I'm doing is fine. 
as long as I'm doing it sincerely. I don't have to think anymore about measuring this and measuring that. And that's again where Swami says, that's where art is going. It'll be just much more a personal thing. You do it for yourself. You do it for a few friends. It's not this big sort of imposition on the universe because it isn't about reinforcing ego. It's about liberating ourselves from ego. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it fun? The more I read Swami's books, the more I think, my God, what a teaching we're involved in, you know, and how little we know about it. We're acting it all out. He's having us do it. But the more consciously we can do it, the better we can do it ourselves, the better we can help people. Now, having sort of run the train from one end of the track to the other. Yes, Patrick? Uh, I just to step back a bit. It's all right. You can go back to an earlier station. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's, I, I might not be quoting it exactly accurately, but Master, Chain, uh, Master quotes Swami Shankaracharya, who was a, a sage in India, a recognized master, as, as saying that you cannot free yourself from delusion, from maya, by merely doing outward rituals. You can't just do the fire sermons, you can't just go to mass, you can't just go to confession, you can't just do your rosary, because the rosary doesn't have the power to conquer maya. It's not the opposite of it. The opposite of delusion is realization. And realization comes by inner communion. And when you have inner communion, then you can escape from delusion because inner communion is the opposite of delusion. So you have inner communion while doing the ritual? You, well, it's possible, but you would... You would kriya br- is a Pardon me? No, Kriya is a practice. Kriya is actually scientifically moving the energy. Now, if you have sufficient devotion, the, co- the communion wafer can be an inner reality. He's, but, but then... It's not, it's not the ritual that's giving you the power, it's you, the ritual's not changing you, it's you who are finding the power in the ritual. And that doesn't mean, like, you know, St. Uh, Therese Neumann, it never ate anything but the communion wafer, but if it wasn't sanctified, she knew it and she couldn't swallow it. Because then it was a piece of bread and she couldn't eat it. But if it had been, uh, what's the sanctified isn't the word, consecrated, she could tell. Uh, so there's, you know, saints give confirmation. That's not to say that outward rituals are, are with no, without power. It's just that you can't, you can't attain self-realization merely by going to church unless you're also doing something inside of yourself. And so you may sit in church and do something inside of yourself, but you've got to be doing something inside yourself. Does that make sense? It's a lovely statement. I love that one. It puts you in mind of of having to create opposites. I mean, you have to create something of equal power. That's really what he's saying, of balancing power. You know, like a chanting is ritual, but you have to engage it intensely. Oh, chanting... Well, chanting is... Right. It's an outward action that has the potential to take you into true inner communion. But you see, eventually you go into silence. But chanting has the capacity to lift your consciousness and harmonize your feelings and calm your mind to the point where you can then go into silence. So it's a gateway. Yeah, but I mean, ritual is useful. I mean, for heaven's sake, Swami wrote one for us. And there were a lot of people when he did who got all up in arms. And he said, get real. You know, essentially, he didn't say that, but he said that. Get real about this. Ritual is going to help. 
because you'll hear it over and over, it goes deeper and deeper into your subconscious, it'll strengthen your, your position. No, in and of itself it won't free you, but it can help you. It can help you get free. And it'll help many people get free because it'll give them something to hold on to. As long as we know what it is. The very ritual itself says that ritual won't help you. <laughs> I mean, it speaks of inner communion all through it. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions or comments? Uh, James? Can there be a true artistic feeling that does not express uplift? Oh, yes. You just can, you can chant, you can be artistic at any vibra vibratory level you want. Swami's theory here is what constitutes greatness in art. <clears throat> and you could, and so what constitutes true greatness, lasting greatness, you could do a great, a work that is, that is powerful, clear, transmits with overwhelming effectiveness, any vibration at all. Now will it endure and be recognized as great? Swami says only if it resonates with soul consciousness, basically is what he really says, when you really look through it. Only if it really speaks to what human beings intuitively know is their own true nature. And, and he, he makes a point, and he makes it over and over, and it's important, that it's all right if your perception is not God-realized. It's all right if your perception is not God-realized way down the scale, not God-realized, as long as what you're presenting is seen in the context of trying to move upward. I mean, from the, from the criteria he's using for greatness. You can perfectly express the tragedy of human loss, which you could say on one level is just, a, just Maya, but you could express it so perfectly. And he uses Shakespeare all the time as an example because Shakespeare presents so many different aspects of human nature, but somehow, and the criteria that he uses, which I'll review in a minute, it all generates this uplifting energy. And as he says, you see these villainous characters like Shylock, and, and, and there, there's just this, such a sense of shared humanity in the portrayal of it that even though the, the subject matter is not elevated, the effect of the treatment of that subject matter is elevated because of all the other things that he brings into play. And, of course, not everybody is interested in elevating uh, consciousness, their own or anybody else's. And much earlier in the book, Swami says, I'm not telling you what to do. If that's what you are, if that's what people are, fine. I'm just talking about, if you're interested in self-realization, how to look at art. And if you're interested in self-realization, I'm asking you the question is whether you actually want that person's vibrations in your home. Which is, is an, you know, he's, he's writing this for a much wider audience, for people who may never have thought about it. That it's dismal and downward pulling, but it's so well executed, they brought it into their home. But the, the theme and the consciousness of it is, as he said, nobody you'd have over for dinner, but you'd hang it on the wall. Does that make sense? It does. Some other very uh, you 
Right. But that's part of life. He's, he's not at all saying, and it's very important to realize, he's not at all saying that we, we can't or shouldn't include the entire spectrum of reality because all those things are true. It all depends on the perspective you bring to it. Are you reveling in it? Are you trying to push people down with it? Or are you entering into it for the sake of, of you know, drawing a, a deeper truth out of it? And, and again, he writes, he writes about these qualities of um, gener generosity of spirit. You know, are you trying to separate? Are you trying to oppress or are you trying to embrace and to help others? Are you, are you the artist, genuinely spiritual in your outlook? It's the intent behind it. Or are you saying, Swami writes in an earlier chapter about a composer, I remember, I know who he was talking about, a, you, know, well, you know, a person that we knew. And he talked about how he just was showing off in his music. It was just completely without rhyme or reason. It was just to show how clever he was. So there was, you know, any emotion that he was expressing through it was really the hidden message was his own ego. And he talks about Tchaikovsky, you know, just being when you go, have I pronounced it correctly? For some reason my mind goes blank. Just he's, he, Swami, Swami's viewpoint that when you go into it, it's too much self-pity is how he put it. And so it keeps it from ever being really great because greatness, it's, and this is what's so interesting about the way Swami says it, I mean, among the zillions of things that are interesting, is he says that over time, human beings instinctively maintain contact with that art which affirms divine truth. And they, and they gradually just let die away that art that doesn't. Even if at the time the person was unpopular, even if their art disappears for a, a while, if it, if it really helps people see the bigger reality that we're all seeking, it will endure. And if it doesn't, it won't. And it's just human beings vote with their own uh, uh, awareness, intuitive awareness of it. Claire? No, I think it's interesting about Tchaikovsky uh -huh. is that what has really endured is his ballet music. Huh. And I think that he thought that was very, that it was trivial. He didn't really like his ballet music. Huh. Interesting. But perhaps there was less self-importance yeah, self in it and therefore it may have been better I couldn't judge because I don't really know his work in any sense I wouldn't know but yes it's quite possible that the thing that he valued less actually had more spirit because it had less ego it's quite possible I mean you could see how that would happen yeah well it's not again it's alright to like lots of things we don't have to just hold out and only like this and only like that this is really helping us to understand the whole cycle. And of course, you know, bits and pieces of things are beautiful. Many things are, parts of them are beautiful. Part of a painting or part of a piece of music. And it's enough that that part's there. You just kind of live through the rest of it and you go through that part and you love it. Yeah. I had a question yeah. that came out of the, the last chapter uh, when Swami talked about... Um, the predictions of the future yeah. of how the music would go. And I understand what he was saying about the symphony and, and how that would change and how that would sort of die out. But I was wondering how, without those symphonies, how some of that great music would survive. Um, 
Well, that's a good question. You know, there certainly are enormous gaps in human history. We don't have any idea what the Egyptian music really sounded like. Or, you know, many civilizations exist for a while and then they're obliterated. When uh, Vyasa gives his class on the yugas, he, um, he just talks about all these different times in history when everything was wiped out. You know, just, it's mostly Kali Yuga descending, but things are wiped out and or rediscovered. See, the other thing that's happened that's very interesting, if you think about the Yuga cycle, which is the, the nadir of consciousness on this planet, the apex of it, and then you have this long time where you descend and then coming back up, and most of you know we're about here on the upward moving cycle. But you see, you start discovering what was opposite you on the other side. So even though this might have been consciousness coming down and this is consciousness coming up, we're suddenly at the same level. And so Biasa says things like, when, we reach the, when this planet reaches the point of evolution, when the pyramids were built, then all the secrets of the pyramids will suddenly be known to us, whereas we, we don't get it now. So it's, it's possible that music that really speaks to the, the people on the planet now, see, also you have to bear in mind, this is all about the people on the planet. And the people who are on the planet are on the planet now because it's an appropriate planet. And when the planet changes, different people will come. Maybe us, maybe others, who knows? Master said you go to, there's many planets and you go all over the place. If it's Kali Yuga, and you're not really, you don't need a Kali Yuga, you'll go to the Dwapara Yuga. If it's Dwapara Yuga where you've been and you really need a Kali Yuga, you'll go to a Kali Yuga. And this particular little window of opportunity is the time when people get to destroy a great deal and so lots of people are on this planet who like to rip things apart. <laughs> and that's what we have. You know, there's just all these people here who have, who have the karmic need to just wreak havoc on their brothers and sisters. And they're just running around wreaking havoc all over the place. But they won't be able to get to this planet after the whole thing calms down because they'll be havoc wreakers. And if they're not done, they'll have to go someplace else and wreak havoc. So, so that which you consider to be great music is great to a certain perspective. And it'll last as long as that perspective has popularity. Swami's music, which we consider to be great, is most people just are completely indifferent to it because it doesn't speak to them. But there, there will be an age, on, probably on this planet, where suddenly people will just turn around and they'll discover this vast body of music that Donald Walters wrote, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, and the first part of whatever century they happen to be in at that time because all of a sudden it'll be there for them and they won't remember Led Zeppelin necessarily <laughs> and they may or may not remember Beethoven just depends on whether it makes any sense to them or not but if it's meant to be it'll come back around the rest it'll disappear because you know we, we're so thing oriented we think it matters you know that it get preserved I, I, I don't mean to be inconsiderate but you know when everybody talks about this species disappearing and that species and this tree fly and this you know leaf form and this turtle and it's not like in essence the reason why it's important is because we are so out of balance with nature that's not helping us very much Swami talks about how how long can the earth put up with this? He said, sooner or later, I think the earth is just going to purge itself of this pestilence of human nature because it's, human nature is such a drag right now for the earth. Okay. 
I was talking about the planet wanting to purge itself of the pestilence of Mother Earth, but what I was talking about was species disappearing. We have such a thought that everything has to stay the same. Nothing stays the same. Species disappear because they're not needed anymore. Whole civilizations have gone away. And on one hand, as I say it, insofar as it's about our dissonance, that's not good. But, you know, all of these cultures, indige quote, indigenous cultures, have all just disappeared. And you, on one hand, it's because of very bad things that other individuals did. On the other hand, it's over. You know, many civilizations have come and gone. It's just over. They were suitable for a time on this planet. It's over. So now something else is happening. So naturally they have to go away. So even though we may like certain things, we have to not be, as Master put it, ruled by sentiment. We get sentimental about things and we think they're important just because we like them. And, they, and we have to stand back and look at it from a more divine perspective. It was interesting Master saying that. It wasn't just a casual comment. You know, don't be ruled by sentiment. Don't get caught in the fact that because you're used to it that there's a value in it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't fight to save the manuscript if somebody wants to burn it. But at the same time, if you see the forces of history going in a certain direction, be interested in what's happening. Be on a quest instead of in a state of revolt. You see the difference? You know, that's the little bird. He's in a revolt. This is the way things are happening. I think it shouldn't happen. Instead, you're on a quest to say, well, I wonder why it's happening that way. And still may be your job to try to do something else. But you always want to be looking at it from that point of view. Are you also saying that um, that music that is uh, uplifting and or healing or whatever uh, great mu music or art or whatever to us now in this yuga at this particular time might not even be such for someone at a, in a, a different time? Well, certainly. Not even needed or not, not appreciated in the same way. Right. It depends on what level it comes from and what level you're on, and what you can reach to. You know, some people, uh, using Swami music, Swami's music as an example, really, they just it just doesn't speak to them. But they could move forward from some other place. And, and truthfully, that's why a lot more people need to write music. We are the least, Ananda as a, a group, is the least creative in the area of music. And Swami himself is aware of that, we're, partly because we're really nervous about creating our own music because there's been a lot of music that people wrote that just wasn't up to snuff so people got a little nervous about it but the fact of the matter is that many people here and in other parts of Ananda will be able to take a true vibration that will then speak to a different group you know, Christy Norfleet in Boulder Creek is suddenly writing all this music that's been coming to her and it's beautiful music and it's different and it will just speak to different people. But it will say, it, as Swami said, it's, it's true. It's a true inspiration, the music that she's writing. It's her inspiration. It's a true inspiration. And some people will be really reached by that. And that's our job. You know, we can't just stop. And that's when Swami himself laughs, you know, in this book, when someone said, what's your favorite music? Mine, he said. And then he thought, well, that was a funny thing to say. First of all, he said, it's not really mine. But he said, the vibration of that music is the most uplifting to me because that's the music that I heard. If he said, and then he said, if you ask me what's the best, he said, I wouldn't know how to even answer that. Because it just depends on who's listening and what it is that they need. Yeah? You know, even the great composers often, um, their music was forgotten until a later time. Yeah. Not, yeah. You know?
yeah, it was just lost until somebody got it again. But it, it, it has a divine power. It won't be lost. That which is true. Well, let's take a break. So the last. Yes. Earlier yeah, you mentioned uh, about not hearing a painting from a person whose consciousness is incorrect or appropriate. Well, just that you wouldn't, if you wouldn't have them to dinner, don't hang their painting on the wall. <laughs> okay? Uh-huh. But in practical matter, if I get attracted to a painting because of its color or whatever, I mean, there's no way of judging the artist. Oh, no, well, that's what... The, but Swami gives you instructions earlier on. It was perhaps a class that you weren't present. He talked about exactly how to stand in front of a painting and feel its consciousness. And it's part of what he trained... He trains you in art appreciation. And I think it was in the first or second class we talked about, about how to... St- and then in, in the chapters before this one, he talks about how different lines and different colors represent different things. And it was very interesting after reading and hearing that, just looking around and sort of seeing... Um, it sort of... Uh, it intellectualized impressions that you would already have and then you would sort of stop and think about it and it would make you more attuned because a lot of times we're just so unconscious about so much that we do last night I was joking about that and said you know we're so I was telling about this this day this marvelous day in my life I had about five incidences in a row that were similar like this putting on my earrings in the morning I'm looking at, I'm putting on one earring, I'm looking at another pair and thinking, gee, I don't wear those very often, they're, they're, they're very pretty. That was like at 8. At 3 p.m., I just happened to go like that, and I realized I was wearing one earring from one set and the other from the other. And I mean, that's, so I looked foolish all day and nobody told me that's not so bad. What was terrifying is that I never, I had no recollection of, 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 of switching and putting on that other one. It was just like a complete blank out. And I was just commenting about, I wonder how much we're just unconscious. And somebody said, all the time. (laughs) But a lot of times we just look at things, and oh, I like that, I don't like that. We're just not conscious. We don't stop and feel it and try to see what it's really doing for us. And it's, it's good. You just walk into your own environment and you walk around at everything that's in your environment and say, what is this doing for me or not doing for me? You know, if I didn't know the person who lived here, what would I think they were like? Would I like them? You know, and if you don't, then maybe we start working with it. Just become aware. Okay. Any other questions or comments? Thoughts? Are you going to discuss the idea about Einstein and the absolute? I was thinking about it. (laughs) Let's see if I'll get to it or not. Swami, Swami does that marvelous, the death knells of art. And it's, it's really, um, it just, he's so good at, at being succinct and putting a whole lifetime into this. He talked about, I don't know how many death knells there were, but we'll probably know when I finish, remember when I finish. But he talked about, first came the Industrial Revolution. And, and he's just talking about the evolution on this planet. You see, it's this transition from Kali to Dwapara. We have to go through these stages because we're, we're not just going to be horse and buggy forever. I... Um, a, a while ago there was a reality television series where they sent uh, three families back to the frontier you remember Frontier House it was called as it happens Sharon Brooks' cousin and her uncle uh, that were, were one of the families the, the a black man and the, his father or Sharon Brooks' cousin Gil's brother so because of that I'm not, I've never seen those things because of that they had the 
videotape of it and uh, she was showing it to us and uh, I got very, very interested in it and I watched the whole thing. It was very interesting. But what was so fascinating to me and, and horrifying to those people was how hard it was to work. I mean, you just had to work so hard and you know, it's one of these things where the camera follows them all the time and every picture, whenever they were talking to a woman, she was going like this with a butter churn. <laughs> Because they could just never afford not to be churning butter. It just was exhausting. And one of the women who uh, was very, just didn't enjoy it at all, she'd had this completely other picture of what it was going to be like. You know, she would learn quilting and she would do all these you know, different things. She didn't realize that she would spend almost all her time just putting food on the table for her family because that was all the time there was. And the men were always having to chop wood because they were in Montana or someplace like that and they had a four or five month window to chop their wood or else they would die. And at the end of the whole cycle, they analyzed and determined that they, all the families would have died because <laughs> they just couldn't have coped. That's all quite beside the point. The point is, we're moving into an age, a very different age, and so we have to go through these um, accelerated cycles where, where what we had we lose, but we don't really have what we want yet. So we talked about the Industrial Revolution just making things possible that weren't possible before and all of the inventions that have come that just completely change the way we live and, and give us the opportunity to have a better quality of life. But it's also just taken away from us our peace of mind, our silence, and it's, it's destroyed our sense of beauty. And it was very interesting the way he put it. It's just the cities have become so polluted and the, the noise is so all-pervasive and... I mean, just look around. It's just, I remember Joseph Campbell, such a poignant remark in the middle of one of his interviews about myths and stories, and that Bill Moyer said to him with great sincerity, he said, well, what happens to a culture when they, they no longer have myths and stories to keep, keep alive and all these deep and touching truths? And, and uh, Joseph Campbell sort of looked out the window and he said, this. <laughs> 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 which you know we're so proud we think we're the apex of civilization we're just a disgrace but the industrial revolution just completely mixed us up about aesthetics we just lost connection with, with what's happening it, it's ultimately going to be good but at the present moment it isn't so good and then he talked about was the next one Darwin that came next I can't quite remember which was the next one Which, where was it? It's not in here. You know, these different... That Darwin is next? Okay, it's Darwin, Freud, and Einstein. And I was trying to remember which ones were there. The next one he talked about was Darwin, about how what Darwin did, and Swami's so good at this, he talks about, it's not as if these are false teachings, it's just the way we've interpreted it as false. He said Darwin could have been looked at exactly the opposite. It could have been looked at Look what a mighty evolutionary cycle we're all in. He said, look how wonderfully interconnected all beings are, that we all have this wonderful interrelationship. You see, that's an expansive way to take it, instead of saying that we're basically just animals and that you know, our, we're just struggling up and that the, the real truth is our animal nature, instead of saying that our real truth is the angel nature and look, we're evolving toward it. That, that Darwin just kind of turned it over um, or the way people have interpreted it 
and, and that was where Freud came in and really, you know, kicked it over the other, which by, by focusing on what is ab, abnormal psychology, as how, as how he described it, and made us um, so conscious of, of all the things that um, can go wrong in us and the, the dangers of not facing the darkness properly, it just played into that picture of Darwin. They were all animals anyway, and we just lost our way. You know, it's, it's, just, it's not as if what they taught or what they said was wrong in itself. It's the way we ended up taking it. We used it all to flip our consciousness down to the, the, the limitations and the weaknesses and the worst of it. And somehow it's more real. You know, the, the result of the Freudian movement is that if you're affirming aspiration, you're not being honest. And, and that's just crazy. Because to, there's no more truth in affirming your limitations than there is in affirming your, your aspirations. There's, in fact, less truth in it. And, and they're not really proposing something different. It's just the orientation got so focused on the, on the low part that people just lost heart for expanding, lost heart for going forward. And most people don't really think deeply. They just kind of take what they're born into. So you have all this movement in art that isn't considered real unless it's the dark underbelly, as Swami writes about it. His own friend who was going to write this novel and it had to be seamy and it had to be gutsy. And it, you, just so many stories are about people that you would never want to spend time with. You know, that, and, the, and they try to make them seem like they have some great wisdom that more refined people lack. But common sense tells you they don't. You know, you spend time with them, it's not uplifting. They're just people struggling to get their lives together. There's nothing wrong with them. They're not bad, but they're not helpful. It isn't helpful to sort of be there. It's just a false teaching again, but it's very confusing. And then the last one was Einstein. And this is again where Swami, when we were doing Hope for a Better World a few weeks ago, we went through all of these in much greater detail because he gives everyone a chapter. But he talked about how what Einstein did was by... He took away the the unalterable fixedness of things. And it used to be that there was all this dogma that was just true. This was heaven, this was hell, this was right, this was wrong. You know, just like Swami's little song about boxes, where the uh, Englishman says, well, we win in war because we pray. And the German says, well, we pray too. And then the Englishman says, well, but we pray in English. <laughs> I mean, the obvious implication is that any god would speak English, you know. He could probably can't understand you. It's so stupid. But it's really, it's really under there, isn't it? That just my way is the best way. I mean, the British conquered the whole planet with that attitude and destroyed India. Totally destroyed it, as Swami said. Not by force, but by sneering. And, it's, it, and you know, Indians said it's ta- it, it is taking them generations to get over it. Just to, because of that fixed, this is right, this is wrong, this is the way things are. And Einstein's discovery that it's all relative, so to speak, that there are no absolutes on this plane of consciousness, that it all just keeps shifting. Nobody knows what Einstein really said, but that's how we take it. Made, made people think that there, that there are no values, that anything goes. But we all know that's not true. And, and, and the real truth of all of this is that it's, it's all an uplifting direction. Freud opened us up to these many levels of influence that we were unconscious of. As Swami says, 
Freud talked about the subconscious, but what it really starts allows us to talk about is the superconscious. It allows us to say there are many dimensions to the mind. Darwin allows us to say we're, we're going somewhere, we're evolving. And, and Einstein allows us to say, and this is the most wonderful word, that it's directional. You're not either in heaven or hell. You're just moving toward the light or you're moving away from it. And that allows, you know, the question that James was asking, how do you deal? How do you make art out of tragedy? How do you make art out of heartbreak? How do you make art out of, you know, uh, pain and suffering? Because God knows we all live through it and we need to make art out of it because how, how are we going to make it through? How are we going to work out these feelings? How are we going to make beauty out of our suffering? And we have to be able to include it all. We can't just say these are the acceptable topics, these are not. You know, you walk through the Uffizi and just for a long time it's just Jesus being crucified and occasionally being born and then being crucified and occasionally being born or baptizing John. But it just goes on and on and on and on. And then it breaks out completely, but for a long time that's the only thing people were allowed to paint. I mean, that's not enough. People did a great job of that, and some of them are beautiful. I've quoted to you often, Swami coming out of there saying, it is time for a new theme, he said. That one is, we've been there, we've done that. Because we have to be able to say everything. And that's Dwapara Yuga, it's all spirit. And all of these things that people have used to turn us against, even the Industrial Revolution, you know, is freeing us from the burden of, of, of uh, material life. It's just that we've, in this most insane manner, created another bigger burden out of it. But eventually it won't be so, because it won't be possible. The earth is going to do something, God is going to do something. And then all of those things, we'll, we'll just flip them in the way there, because everything leads to the divine, nothing really doesn't. And it will all help us. And all of that, as Swami writes, and he tied this together earlier, causes people to lose faith. They've lost faith in a higher level of awareness. They've lost faith in beauty. They've lost faith in the fact that everything leads to a solution. They've lost faith in their own ability to connect with something bigger. And as a consequence, we can't make art because without any of that, we can't make art. We can just flail around in the darkness and make monstrosities. And... Uh, Untitled works in plywood. <laughs> 18. Untitled works. In New Jersey. I think it's in New Jersey. I don't want to cast dispersions on the great state of New Jersey, but I think it was New Jersey. It would be too perfect. I'm not from New Jersey. I'm just being rude. Okay. Are there any other comments or questions or thoughts? I may have um, said everything that I have to say. All right, then. Thank you very much. It's been great fun. Thank you for coming. <laughs>